Hello and welcome to Sermon Seasonings, the podcast of Christchurch Gladesville, where we dig in a little more depth at the passage we looked at on Sunday. My name's Mandy. And I'm Brayden. Well, on Sunday, uh, Brayden preached his first sermon here at Christchurch Gladesville. We had Invitation Sunday and we looked at Acts chapter 17 and you proclaimed to us the unknown God. That's right. Well, I tried to. Hopefully, hopefully that is what happened. <laughs> yeah. And I guess for us, um, we've been doing Invitation Sundays and having specific weeks where we seek to, we want every week to be a week that we can invite people who don't yet know Jesus to come mm. along. Yeah. Uh, but some weeks seem to be particularly good for helping those who don't yet know Jesus to come along. And so I thought maybe in this, your first podcast, we might talk a little bit about the difference between how you might actually preach a sermon when we know that a significant number of the audience don't yet know Jesus as opposed to what we do every Sunday. Yeah, yeah. It's a great question. I think in, in a sense there is differences and then there are no differences. Actually what you're doing is still preaching and you're still trying to achieve a very similar outcome, that being the transformation of those who are listening to the word preached. Um, I think the key difference comes in in when we consider who we are speaking to. Yep. So on any given Sunday, you could basically say that there are two audiences listening uh, to the sermon. Those who do know Jesus and those who do not yet know Jesus. Yep. And on most Sundays when we preach, we are thinking more about those who do know Jesus and possibly can, and hopefully considering those who don't yet know, but they're not our primary audience. Yeah. Yep. So our primary audience is the members of our church family That's who right. come week in, week out, who come ready to hear God's yeah. word and wanting to be changed by it. Yeah, exactly. And then the difference with last Sunday, well, this Sunday just gone, is that we're actually flipping that a little bit. And I'm really thinking about that percentage of people who are coming who don't yet know Jesus. And so in my preaching on Sunday, I was, and my preparation in the lead up to that, I was thinking about those people. How are they going to hear it? What do they need to hear from Acts 17? Yeah. Yeah. So I guess that's a little bit different because even though in terms of the total audience size on Sunday, it still might've been the majority of people there were people who already know Jesus. Yeah. Your primary audience and the primary target for what you were preaching was those who were there who don't yet know him. That's right. You might look around the room on the, on that Sunday and think, I know most people here still. Well, I I wasn't talking to them. Well, <laughs> I was in a sense, but if I could put it if I put it bluntly, I wasn't talking to them. Yeah. Um, I was talking to the, probably the few people that maybe you didn't know or didn't recognize. Yeah. 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 And so are there other similarities that come out between the how you'd go about preaching um, to on a normal Sunday as opposed to kind of invitation Sunday. Yeah. So one possible, maybe obvious, but maybe not obvious similarities, I'm still preaching from the word of God. And so where I start in my process of preparing a sermon is exactly the same. I'm still going to, to look deeply at the text, try to understand this text of scripture, Acts 17, what does it say? Um, it's, 
it's all similar for that first, probably first half of my kind of pre- preparation process. I did nothing different. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, you showed me your notes. So, yeah. you, you still, you flow charted the Greek. That's and right. you <laughs> made observations about what was going on and kind of just like really interrogating the text and understanding what does Acts 17 yeah. say? Yeah, that's exactly right. Um, the other thing is I'm still trying to preach for transformation. We believe that the, the word of God is alive and active, sharper than a double-edged sword, and, and it produces change in us. And so I'm still preaching as I proclaim the word of God for transformation. I guess where it becomes different though is, and, and, and still thinking about this audience stuff, who I'm speaking to is I'm not looking for transformation so much in the person who has been a Christian for a long time, but the person who doesn't even yet know Jesus, I want them to be transformed. And that really is, I want to see them converted. I actually want to see them come out of darkness into the wonderful light. Yeah. 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 And so whereas normally it might be about how the Christian needs to change what they think about something or how to live or a bigger understanding of who God is, um, that perhaps for Sunday, for those who are already believers, a lot of what you heard, we heard was more what we already know. But for those who don't yet know, it was a chance for them to be completely have their life turned up upside down yeah that's or, right or maybe it's actually have their life turned right side up yeah well yes theologically that's <laughs> certainly true i think it's also probably just good to add at this point that this doesn't mean our christians our regulars can come into an invitation sunday or an evangelistic sermon and go oh sweet i can switch off this week i don't actually need to listen or worse i don't need to come this oh week. certainly not that no I, yeah, I, I oversaw that. Because actually, one, the gospel is what has transformed and changed us. And it is an amazing thing that we can be reminded of that in a really explicit, possibly more clear way than normal and possibly and definitely more explicit way than normal because it is what has initially transformed us and continues to transform mm. us until um, until we're with Christ in the last day. Yeah, because yeah. we never actually move on from the good news of Jesus. Yeah. Like, yeah. you know, when I think of the way that the good news when I first heard it, it's still good news now. Oh, yeah. Um, in fact, sometimes I think it gets better as you get to know it better, get to understand it better, and you're reminded of those core truths that um, you first heard maybe when you were first converted or whatever. Yeah. Sometimes it gets more amazing. Yeah, mm. yeah, the depth of it yeah Um, yeah so are there any other similarities or differences that helpful for us just even as we think about it because I think that's one of the things that's helpful for us as we come to think about what what God is doing in his word you know sometimes it is a bit different as we work through the passage yet God's word remains the same yes so a big big well a, a big similarity is that I'm still preaching from the text I'm not just um, coming with ideas and presenting that series of ideas. I'm actually saying, well, how does Paul in this speech and Luke, as he's written this speech of Paul's down, how has he presented the gospel here? And how can I um, understand that and utilize that to present it in our context today? And something you might notice that I did a little differently to what perhaps I guess is normal here at Christchurch is I started at the beginning of the text and then I went close to, closer to the end of it and then kind of back into the middle. I didn't necessarily go through it sequentially, which is what we typically do here at Christchurch. Yeah. yeah. So that's a bit, bit, probably a big difference, I suppose. Yeah. And so can we maybe talk through that difference? Yeah, Because, um, yeah. you know, 
I'd like to give our listeners credit of their careful listeners. <laughs> um, we're trying to, you know, part of the point of this podcast is to teach us to notice differences and notice what's going on. So, yeah, so you started at the beginning um, of the passage and yep. talked about the unknown God yep. and, you know, talked about the way that Paul proclaims this unknown God who is actually mm. knowable. But then you actually went to the end of the passage where it talked about the response that God commands mm. of all people. Yeah. So, you know, that we are commanded to repent. Yeah. Um, and then you went back to the middle and talked about the desire that God has mm. for relationships. So can you talk us through why would you do it in that order? Why didn't you just go through, well, because Paul started at the beginning and he yeah. went to the beginning and then he talked yeah. about the desire and then he ends with, well, therefore repent. Yeah. Yeah, it's a great, great question. I think the short answer, which I will expand on, is one word, it's clarity. And it's clarity for the non-Christian, the not yet believer who's listening to this. Possibly, not all, obviously everyone's different, but possibly for the first time. We can't, I guess, expect a level of biblical literacy that we might expect for someone who has been a Christian for a long time or who's even been around, been around church for a long time, but someone who could possibly have walked into a church for the first time, they could be listening to this. Yeah. And again, it comes down to audience. I want to be as clear as possible from Acts 17 with the gospel that I'm presenting um, to that person. And so that's why I presented it still with the logic and the argument in, that's in Paul's speech, but just in a different order so that I could try and get as much clarity for that person uh, and those people as possible. Yeah. 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 And so can you then help us talk through, so how how did it help with the clarity yeah. to bring kind of the, the command up earlier? Yeah. So the, I think the thing I was trying to, to draw out was – or trying to achieve was create a sense of tension and then resolution. So the tension is, who is this God commanding me to do something? I don't mm. possibly believe in this God. Uh, even if I do believe in a God, I don't know if it is this God and I definitely don't live my life for him. So who is he to sort of be commanding me to do mm. something, this repent thing, whatever, you know, in their mind, maybe whatever that is. Um, and so what I was trying to achieve and hopefully did achieve was, this sense of tension in a person and then resolve it with this incredible desire that God has to actually see us reconciled to himself. And that in a sense is something that is core and central to the gospel that God actually wanted humanity who betrayed him and himself to be reunited again. You know, you can hear your yeah. <laughs> the excitement in your voice. And it's like, you know, I find myself, I'm sitting here nodding because yeah. it is such good news, isn't yeah. it? Like, yeah. it's so broken, but God is so excited about actually and wants that. Mm. He wants it enough that he sent his son. Mm. It is mind-blowing, isn't it? It is mind-blowing. And that one of those illustrations that I used about my mum pleading with me when she was worried I was going to go down a similar direction, a similar path, I suppose, to what she had, is that illustration I hope brought out the fact that we actually do feel that tension. We, we might give someone a hard word or we might speak in a blunt way to someone because we, we love them and we actually want to see that the decision that we want them to see, the decision they're making is possibly not right mm. and that there could be a far better outcome. And I think on a 
cosmic level, that is, and a spiritual level, that is what God is doing for us. He's saying, I can see where you're going is mm. not good. Yeah. And I've got something so much better for you. Yeah. Come back, repent. Yeah. 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 Which, and that's really helpful to kind of see the way that when we're presenting the gospel to others, we want to make sure that what we're doing is the truth of God's word and presenting it to them clearly. But that means partly it's understanding people. So you've talked there about the wanting to to create that tension and raise that tension. And that's because you know and understand people and you want to go the whole, well, I can't just tell you something and expect that, well, if I just tell it to you loudly enough mm. that you'll listen to it. Like sometimes you actually need to to connect with people of where they're at and yeah. satisfy their I don't know if this is the right way to put it, but even like it satisfy their felt need yeah. to kind of go, hang on, why are you telling me this? Oh, yeah. actually, you've convinced me that I have a problem. Yeah. Therefore, now I want to listen to what is the solution to my problem. Yeah. Yeah. That's really helpful as we look at that. And I guess one of the things that I was thinking is that when we look at it specifically, um, all sermons have got to leave stuff on the cutting room floor. Mm. But I guess even more so an evangelistic sermon where you're trying to cut straight through to the heart to people who don't yet know Jesus. Um, there will have been interesting stuff in the text that we had to leave behind. Are there a couple of observations and things that would be helpful for us to walk through now? Uh, yeah, I think I think there would. You probably have noticed on the weekend that I probably only referenced a few verses rather than reading out maybe larger sections of the passage. So there's definitely a lot that ended up on the uh, cutting room floor, floor so to speak. Uh, I think maybe one of the first things that stands out um, are these people that uh, Paul is initially engaging with, mm. um, the Epicureans and yep. the Stoics in about, verse 18. Given we didn't get to read them through in detail, oh, yeah, if that's I read a great them idea. now. Go for it. Um, so... Uh, I'll read from verse 16. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus, where they said to him, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we would like to know what they mean. All the Athenians and their foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. Yeah, so we uh, are introduced to these these two groups of philosophers, and that's what they are. They're two schools of philosophy, the Epicureans and the Stoics. The Epicureans are, are look think that pleasure is the greatest good that we can kind of get out of life, um, except they see that pleasure as kind of gained not by self-gratification, but by actually by living modestly, building knowledge um, about the world and kind of limiting your own desires. The Stoics, it's the belief and that divinity and unity are in everything. They're in all things and they want to uh, seek and make harmony with nature and avoid destructive emotions, which is why mm. often with when we hear the term stoic, we think of people whose emotions are kind of level. Mm. And they're not, there's no emotional highs or, or lows. And so uh, these are the people engaging with Paul. 
And I think what's really common to both of them is that they're thinking about how the world works. They yeah. think they're trying to understand how things and why things are the way that they are. And here comes Paul speaking into this situation, essentially offering a new philosophy. At least I think that's how they would be seeing this. Yeah. And that's why you get these two almost opposite reactions, right? You get one people going, this guy's a babbler. This guy's, uh, the word is talking about picking up bird <laughs> seeds from the ground. He's just picking up a run- bunch of random ideas and kind of trying to mesh them together and come up with some random idea of life. Yeah. They're disregarding what Paul's saying really at that point, where the others, uh, there's intrigue yeah. that's produced by Paul's message. And particularly, it's about Jesus and the resurrection mm. that yeah. is intriguing uh, these philosophers and they want to know more. So they invite him to speak uh, in the Areopagus and um, find out more about Jesus and the resurrection. Mm. So, yeah, so helpful to see kind of who those groups are and how he speaks in to them. Mm. Um, are there any other things that got left left behind worth us thinking about? Yeah, many more, many more. One thing I think that might be helpful is if you, if we flick to verse 25, I don't know if you want to, well, I do know that you want to read that out, Mandy. So how about you read from maybe verse 24? The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. And he's not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. Yeah, so we're, we're in Paul's speech now. Yeah. You know, The quotation marks are there at the start of, well, they're in verse 22, but also again at the start of verse 24. Paul is talking to us now. He's giving his speech at the Areopagus. Um, and he's talking at this point about who this, you know, I'm, you can't see me, but I'm doing quotation marks, yeah. who this unknown God is. And it's the God who created everything, which, mm. which we did pick up on in the sermon. But something we didn't is, who can't be served by human hands. Mm. And and I think that's interesting pick up because the word served there, it's it's not the concept of slavery or like subservient type person. It's actually yeah. the word we use, often translate as heal, to heal. It's the word is therapeuo mm. and you know, we get things like therapeutic or therapy, therapy from <laughs> exactly. And it's so it's the idea of restoration, healing. Maybe mm. another way to say it is taking care of so the picture is God is not a person or God is not this being who needs us to kind of take care of him or assist, mm. him, assist him in some way. God is actually completely and utterly capable of doing what he wants when he wants. He doesn't need any aid from us. Mm. Yeah, mm. which is that kind of interesting picture because I think sometimes when people have a misconception about who God is and why he created the world and his relationship with humanity are kind of like the whole, well, I don't get a God like that who needs people. Yeah. You know, he needs people to worship him so he created the world that it is. And it's mm. like, no, 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 Paul tells us, no, this isn't the God who needs anyone. <laughs> That's right, yeah. And it, it, it's funny, like in that context, they've got all these statues and they're making offerings to them constantly. You know, they need to probably move the statue for the God to technically move. Mm. They actually kind of need this assistance and aid. Whereas this, again, in the commas are happening right now, this unknown God doesn't need that. And yeah. the God of the universe, he doesn't need us to aid him. And... um. I think it really taps into one thing I did mention in this sermon is is the desire of the unknown mm. God. His desire for reconciliation isn't out, coming out of a need of reconciliation, but it is a pure love for 
those he has made. Mm. That is the where the desire comes from. There's no sense that God needs us to be reconciled to him. You know, theoretically, he could just judge and it would be done and wrapped up. Yeah. But it's the love of God, the pure love of God alone that drives his desire to give us redemption. Mm. And it's such a beautiful picture of the redemption that we have yeah. and that, yeah, it is, I think it harks back to what I said at the beginning, it's that mind-blowing thing of, that the God of the entire universe wants relationship with you and I. Yeah. How good. That's unreal. <laughs> so like all good sermons, you know, we need three points. So have, is there one more that you've got for us? Yeah, I reckon we can squeeze one more. And how about we read from verse 26? Sure. So Paul's still talking here. From one man he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth and he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. Yeah, awesome. Thanks, Mandy. I think what we're talking about here is, is God being God being creator. Mm-hmm. He made it all, but also ruler. He's sovereign over it all. He rules it all. He created the times and the boundaries of everyone. But the thing I would I think is interesting possibly to hone in on is this idea that we are his offspring mm. um, as as Paul picks up from a poet uh, and then repeats, therefore, since we are his offspring. Uh, I, ha- I particularly think this is a really cool idea that God has made us. And so in a sense, there is something familial about mm. that, that just because he's made us, we are part of his family in a sense in that way. And I think that's really interesting that there is familial language mm. even embedded in Paul's understanding of creation here. Yeah, mm. yeah. I mean, and that is, I mean, we could kind of go on a lot about there's a whole lot on kind of being offspring, family language and yeah. things like that. Yeah. But I guess here Paul uses it to talk then about the way that those who are his offspring will worship and what they will do and what they won't do in terms of kind of idols. And I wonder, is there a, could we reflect a bit on what that means for us today? Um, Because I don't know about you, but there's not many houses that I walk into that have statues to unknown gods. Yeah. I mean, I think firstly, the argument of Paul at this point is like, why would you as a, a child, so to speak, worship something that you've made over your father or mother. Yeah. And, and, and in a sense, you can picture, we make a drawing. We do a, you can picture a little kid doing kind of a scribble drawing. And then we all worship, all us humans worship this scribble drawing rather than the person who actually made the kid. Yeah. Um, or the people who made the kid, so to speak. Um, but, and that's Paul's argument. Why would you worship something that you've made when I made you? I, I, <laughs> You are my offspring and that that's his argument. And it it does feel like weird to us because we don't, you know, especially in the West, we're not really worshipping a bunch of statues or anything. Um, but I think we do try to base our lives off what other people do. Mm. We try to base our lives off uh, sports personalities. We try to base our lives off business people, the books we read. Uh, we try to base our lives off maybe for the younger people, 
influencers on social media. You know, mm-hmm. you see these snippets of people's lives and we think, oh, they've got it all figured out. But really they've taken a thousand takes to produce that. Yeah. And so we're trying to base our lives off different things. And ultimately that comes down to this idea of, of worship, I think. We're mm-hmm. worshipping other things and trying to base our lives or center our lives off things that God has made. God made the people's skills who are skilled at business or, or um, sport or whatever. He actually yeah. gave them those things. And but we think to worship those things, things that he's given them rather than the person who gave it. Yeah. It's the whole, we're worshiping the creation over the creator. Yeah. And Paul, I think puts it in a, real, a quite a stark way here um, in, in verse 29. Yeah. Yeah. Like that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. And mm. it, it does remind me of that whole thing of like, you know, when you've got the idols, where is it that they've got the idols and they're all set up and they keep falling over and they have to keep resetting yeah, them yeah, back up. Yeah. And you're just kind of going, can you not see your foolishness <laughs> that's going on yeah. there? And I think that's where it's interesting because even as you pick up on kind of influences and sports people and things, like we often now don't seem to have the – the created rock that's carved out that is the thing yeah. that we worship. Yeah. But we do take the kind of created things or the the parts of them, you know, when I think of the idol of family mm. uh, that some people have and it's the whole, it's about the, the picture-perfect family and everything that's there and kind of my child needing to have absolutely every yeah. opportunity that is possible and that that's, that that's everything. Yeah. And they lose connection with the fact that but they are themselves children of yeah. the God who created the whole world. Yeah. I mean, I think like social media and influencers pick up on, I actually think pick up on this maybe more closely than what we realise. Like we think about the amount of crafting that actually goes into some of these posts and putting things in certain ways. That's human design and skill mm. put into a photo or a post or whatever. And we tend to go, okay, let's base, base our life on that. Yeah. Rather than thinking about the one who actually gave whoever created that the skill. Yeah. If that makes sense. Yeah. No. Yeah. I, I think it does. And that is that real, it's the real warning for us, isn't it? That as those who know the God who made everything, where where is my life oriented? Yeah. Because am I oriented yeah. towards, you know, yeah, not fixing my eyes on him and not rightly recognising him for mm. who he is, but rather kind of worshipping the created things. Yeah, yeah. And that's why I love the offspring language so much because it really captures God as our father has made us. And so it makes sense to be orientated towards our father who not only made us, but also really, really loves us. So I, I hope this has been helpful um, as my first crack at a podcast and uh, kind of brings you into a bit more of what's going on in Act 17. Well, Braden, I think you've done really well. So Thank I've you. been Mandy. And I've been Braden, and I think I will continue to do so. Uh, please join us again in a couple of weeks' time. I'll be back in the hot seat with Dave as we look at Acts chapter 20.